Welcome to another in our series of Kehillat Israel podcasts. This is a recording of Rabbi Amy Bernstein's weekly Friday morning Torah study. We're in the first parsha of the book of Vayikra. So for those of you who have not studied Torah with this um, august group before, uh, there will be some new terms uh, that we haven't really encountered very much in Torah before. And there will be some new concepts um, that we haven't really dealt with before because we've been just in Genesis and Exodus. Um, they'll, some of these will reappear in numbers uh, and they get reworked in Deuteronomy because the Deuteronomist is dealing with a different, slightly different theology. We are dealing for the most part in the book of Leviticus with priestly material. We are dealing with um, of our JEPD sources. We're just we'll put H aside for now. JEP and D, we are dealing with for the most part the P source in Leviticus, except where we're dealing with H, meaning the holiness school, um, which we believe was uh, a response to the some of the priestly material before H. Um, the dating of priestly material is a hot topic. It is a hot and fierce argument in the biblical scholarship world. Um, you might not think that is terribly fascinating a place to spend time arguing, uh, but um, but for folks who are invested in this, it has a lot of implications. So if one has an early P source, if P is early, then a lot of the rituals, a lot of the sacrifices, a lot of the um, overarching ideas about purity and impurity, all of those kinds of things, the language we're going to see today of guilt, um, then that is a very old part of the Israelite system. If you have a late P, meaning post-exile P, it is a late addition into the Israelite cult. It is a late addition into the Israelite worldview. I am an early P advocate. Um, I believe a lot of the priestly material is early uh, and informs a lot of the development of Israel. And then H is a response, a later response to the early P material. Um, so that that's, I'll just own my bias. Um, and I think I like to think of these things as being really a, a part of older Israelite history than something that comes about post-exile. Um, and so, but it doesn't matter. We're going to read the text the same way, either way, regardless of when P is dated to. Um, the, the other argument is, is this a manual Vayikra, Leviticus, is this a manual for the priests or is this part of the Israelite texts so that the Israelites could hold the priests accountable for what they're supposed to be doing because we have, we have exactly what they're supposed to be doing. So why does this matter? Who cares who it's written for? It matters a lot if your priesthood, as of, as were most priesthoods and their functioning, were secret in the ancient world. Only the priests in the ancient world saw what happened in the inner sanctum of their temples, and only the priests knew what was supposed to happen and what was going on and what wasn't going on, because the people were not allowed in any more than the people were allowed into the Mishkan. Right. The people are not allowed into the Mishkan. Only the Levites and the priests were allowed in the Mishkan. So an Israelite couldn't check what was going on necessarily uh, or in the temple. But if the population is given exactly the instructions that the priests are supposed to be following, you have a better chance of holding your leaders accountable than if it's all secret. Um, and so there are people who want to believe that this is actually part of educating the populace so that Israel could hold its leaders accountable. So um, I would like to think that that's what's happening because I like that idea, <laughs> but who knows? Um, okay. So that's a little bit about our source. That's, that's our, the source of our material, the P source, the priestly source. It's important to know that P is different from J and E and D in some ways, the Yahwist, the Elohist, and the Deuteronomist. P, I want you to really think about this as we read all of these texts through Leviticus. For P, God is not angry, wrathful, jealous, 
loving, in love with the people of Israel, in like with the people of Israel, mad at the people of Israel. For P, God is completely outside of any kind of actual relationship. God is a force. God is abstract completely, completely other, capital O. Think of it, and many of you know I've used this metaphor before. Think of it as a nuclear force. It is a force that you have to deal with in a way that mitigates the danger of confronting that force unprotected, um, as well as managing the energy one gets from that source. So you could say, well, why would we want nuclear anything anywhere near us? Thank you very much. Why don't we just not, why don't we just keep it over there? If it's the only power source you have or the best power source you have, you want it. You also want to very carefully mitigate the bad parts of being exposed to that power. Does that make sense? If electricity can fry you, why would we have it in our homes, right? If if you have to worry about a kid sticking a fork in a socket and getting electrocuted, why would you allow electricity to run through the walls of your house? Well, because it turns on the lights and it cooks the food, right? It makes bread into toast and that's kind of a nifty thing. Um, and so you want that energy and force in your house, but you also want to make sure that you followed code and are dealing with it as safely as possible. To not have to have the divine energy present among the people in the Mishkan later in the temple, what served as as they understood it, a protective force. If God's presence was in the Holy of Holies, God's enemies Israel's enemies could not destroy them. If God was present when they carried the ark into battle, Israel's enemies could not prevail against them. That is a very important function, right, of of the divine presence being among the people was that you won't get schmeist. In the ancient world, that is the biggest danger there is, is war. Is And just turn on the news in case, you know, you have any any distance from that concept of what would be the most threatening thing that could happen to you, turn on the news and watch what's happening in Ukraine. That was the threat every day in the ancient world, right? Exactly, Susan. Progress, right. <laughs> We're still humans, right? So war is still horrific. All we have to do is think of modern examples. It was constant, the threat of that in the ancient world, constant. So you want to keep in place the power, capital P, that's going to prevent war from coming into your borders. For ancient Israel, that was having the divine presence resting in the Mishkan, later in the temple, unless you want to believe there never was a Mishkan and they're retrojecting that, whatever, doesn't matter. For them, God's presence has to rest among the people. And in that sense, Israel was protected. Okay. Yes, Dana. Quick question. So is this, uh, are these instructions before that, um, event that happened with Aaron's son and, and the pans and the fire? Is it before? In other is words, what, is what before? The directions that we read about in this Torah portion, were they dictated before? I mean, uh, did Aaron's sons learn from this yet? Well, I pres- just presumably Moshe got Torah. Moshe understood exactly what was supposed to happen and gave that instruction to Aaron and his sons. Okay. That was my question. Yes. So remember, remember, we know exactly what happened with Eleazar and Itamar. I mean, sorry, not Davin Abihu. We know exactly what happened. They they offered Esh Zarah. So there's no question that they did something, right, that was not prescribed. We get told that Aish Zara that that was not prescribed, says Torah. So if it's not prescribed, there had to have been very clear instructions that were right. So Torah is very clear about that. There's, there's no way to say, OK, maybe they just didn't. Right. Maybe this hadn't been given yet, but that wouldn't be a fair punishment then, would it? And we can't have that either. 
So, but good question. Thank you. Okay. So uh, we are missing the first part of Ayikra because we are coming in at the last third of every Torah portion, right? We're in the third year of the triennial reading. So we're coming in in the last third of the first portion of Vayikra, of Leviticus. I'm going to be um, referencing those through one of our commentaries because there's a very beautiful teaching um, that holds for all of the book of Leviticus um, that's related to the, for the end of Exodus and beginning of Leviticus. So we'll look at that commentary brought by Rabbi Aaron Lieb Smoker, Smokler. Um, and uh, we're going to look a little bit uh, from Rabbi Yitz Greenberg to the broader understanding of kind of this system and and what it meant for ancient Israel. We are starting um, in the third triennial. We are starting with the Chatat and the Asham offerings. So we get other offerings discussed before this, Leviticus 1 through 3, we're starting chapter four, verse 27, which begins with the chatat, the sin offering. And we are getting after that, the asham offering. And there's lots and lots and lots and lots of scholarship that I will not bore you with about what is the difference between the chatat and the asham. We can talk about it a little bit if you want. Um, but before this, what's important to know come the offerings that are mostly, for the most part, either a holocaust or um, one where the the offerer eats of the sacrifice with the priests. So one theory is that the, the offerings that we're looking at today are given on purpose after those first ones, so it doesn't seem self-serving. Because these offerings, the chatat and the asham, are eaten mostly by the priests. So think about the motivating factor for the priests about how this material might be written, right? So because that's one of the common, that's what, there's a lot of articles on why does it begin with these, move to those, and then why is it like written the way it is, chapters four and five, for the offerings that are eaten mostly by the priests? So see what theory you espouse what theory you come up with about why it's written this way okay so we are starting like i said at chapter 4 verse 27 well into a description of the kinds of offerings that are being brought and just look at the language just just whether we don't have to come up with any clever ideas just just look at the language and how this is talked about and how this is described um to to um joe israelite if any person from among the populace unwitting, unwittingly, okay, so note that, unwittingly incurs guilt by doing any of the things which by Yudhevafe's commandments ought not to be done and realizes guilt or the sin of which one is guilty is made known, that person shall bring a female goat without blemish as an offering for the sin of which that one is guilty. Chata. Right? This is chet. This is sin. The offerer shall lay a hand upon the head of the sin offering. The sin offering shall be slaughtered at the place of the burnt offering. All right. We know this. This is the formula. You place your hand on the head of the animal to shift ownership. You are saying, this is mine. You place your hand on the animal's head to say, this animal belongs to me. And you are now shifting that ownership right over to God and the priests, meaning it becomes kadosh, right? It becomes set aside. The priest shall take with his finger some of its blood. So this is not a Holocaust, right? So that some of the blood is going to go on the horns of the altar of burnt offering and all the rest of its blood, he shall pour out at the base of the altar, the offerer, so this is the person bringing the animal, shall remove all its fat. So think about that. This is not just handed over live to the priest. This animal that you have offered because you have realized you inadvertently sinned, you have to remove all the fat. Okay? So if that's a goat, think about that. That, that is not, that's not a neat process, <laughs> right? It is a bloody, involved process the priest shall turn it into smoke on the altar for a pleasing odor to yud the priest shall thus make expiation for that person who shall be forgiven 
So the fat is given to God. How does God receive fat? By reach nichoach, a pleasing odor. So you've heard me say this a million times, some of y'all, something cooking on the grill. I'm sorry, I can smell it from like half a mile away. There is nothing that smells that good to me in this world. So, um, right, that is what is offered to God, that amazing smell of fat burning. In the ancient world, it was a, it was a, a form of calories, very high and dense in calories. So it was very precious, um, that kind of uh, fat. All right, let's look at this other word. So, reach nichoach ladonai, a pleasing odor to yotevavhe, the chiper alav. Here we're getting the term chiper. Kaf pe resh. Which we know from what? Yom Kippur, right? So this Shoresh, Kaf, Pe, Resh, or K-P-R in English language, this three-letter root we're seeing here means to what? To make expiation. One can look at the etymology of this word, and one can find the etymology in other languages, Um A lot of people want to go to the parent language that has this verb being about covering up, not in the sense of hiding, but covering over. What do you do with a fire so it doesn't spread and cause, right, a forest fire? You cover the fire so that you mitigate, you stop its ability to impact anything around it. That's this sense of kiper, that you are covering over the guilt, the sin, so that the effect of that sin does not continue to have a deleterious effect. Okay. All right. Venislachlo, and he shall be forgiven. Notice, kiper is not enough. To atone for you and your sin is not enough. What else has to happen? Venislachlo, he shall be forgiven. Who's the only one who can do salaching? Yes, God. Exactly right. The uh, this, this, the the sacrifice can affect kapara, but only God can do salaching. <laughs> okay. Okay. La, 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 la. The, uh, so, and if the offering one brings as a sin offering is a sheep. That person shall bring a female without blemish. And again, the offerer shall lay a hand upon the head of the sin offering, and it shall be slaughtered as a sin offering at the spot where the burnt offering is slaughtered. The priest shall take with his finger some of the blood. Look, this is very formulaic. This is where people get the argument. It's a manual, right? This is exactly what has to be done. Some of the blood of the sin offering, put it on the horns of the altar, and the rest of its blood. Oh, I hate when I do those. The rest of its blood. What's going to happen with the rest of its blood? I don't know, Amy, what's going to happen? Uh, it should be poured out at the base of the altar and all its fat, the offerer shall remove, right? We've seen this before for the sin of which is uh, blah, 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 blah. the priest shall turn it to smoke for the sin of which one is guilty. The priest shall thus make expiation. The priest can affect kapa. The priest doesn't. The priest facilitates kapara, but only God can do the salachim again at the end, right? And God and and the person shall be forgiven, meaning God will forgive them. All right. Now we're going to get another kind of sin offering. This is not a chatat. This is going to be called an asham. What does asham mean in Hebrew? I'm going to give you a little melody. What's the first word? Ashamnu. <laughs> Asham. Ashamnu. We are Asham. What is Asham? Guilty. Asham is guilt. Guilty. Ashamnu. We are guilty. All right. So if a person incurs guilt, when one has heard a public imprecation, but although able to testify as having either seen or learned of the matter, has not given information and thus is subject to punishment. All right, that's a lot. That's a mouthful. Or when a person touches any impure thing, like, right, a dead animal, 
and the fact has escaped notice. And then because one is impure by such a thing, that person realizes their guilt, that they've touched something that renders them impure. And then they did not behave accordingly, like what you do when you're impure. So now you're guilty. Or when one touches human impurity and though having known about it, the fact has escaped notice. But later that person realizes guilt or when a person utters an oath to bad or good purpose. And though having known about it, the fact has escaped notice. But later that person realizes guilt in any of these matters. Upon realizing guilt in any of these matters, one shall confess having sinned in that way. And one shall bring an asham. Penalty is already an interpretation, people. And you know how I feel about that. That's already an interpretation of the word. To call it a penalty is JPS's accepting of some commentator's understanding of what makes an asham different from a chatat. I'm not going to give them that power or luxury. We're going to stay with Asham. One shall bring as an Asham to Yudhei for the sin of which one is guilty, a female from the flock, sheep or goat as a sin offering, and the priest shall make expiation for the sin on that person's behalf. But if one's means do not suffice for a sheep, that person shall bring to Yudhei as an Asham, for that of which one is guilty, two turtle doves or two pigeons, one for a chatat and one for an ola, right? One for a sin offering and one as a holocaust. The offerer shall bring them to the priest who shall offer first the bird for the sin offering, pinching its head at the nape without severing it, shall sprinkle some of the blood of the sin offering on the side of the altar and what remains of the blood shall be drained out at the base of the altar. It is a chatat. And the second bird he shall prepare as an olah, according to regulation. For the sin of which one is guilty, the priest shall thus make expiation on behalf of that person, vanislachlo, and that person shall be forgiven. If someone's means do not suffice for two turtles or two pigeons, that person shall bring us an offering for that of which one is guilty, a tenth of an epha of choice flour for a sin offering. One shall not add oil to it or lay frankincense on it because that ruins the bread, uh, for it is a sin offering. The offerer shall bring it. The priest shall scoop out of it a handful as a token portion and turn it to smoke on the altar, right? So a token portion becomes an ola. Uh, Holocaust with Yudhe's offerings by fire, it is a chatat. For whichever of these sins one is guilty, the priest shall thus make expiation on behalf of that person who then shall be forgiven. It shall belong to the priest, like the mincha. Then God speaks further to Moshe when a person commits a trespass, being unwittingly remiss about any of God's sacred things, one shall bring an asham to yod a ram without blemish from the flock, convertible into payment in silver by the sanctuary weight as an asham. Now notice, it treats the word asham here as penalty, but what is it, what is it treated as here? Guilt. You see why I'm loath to translate? They're translating the same word two different ways. One, its function says the JPS translation, is to serve as a penalty over and above the chatat. But it's coming out of the fact that one is guilty of not having realized one commits a trespass. So I'm just unwilling to to parse, right, to differentiate between those. It's all asham. That person shall make restitution for the remission regarding the sacred things, adding a fifth part to it and giving it to the priest. So what is this about? This is one inadvertently used things that were kadosh. If you realize you inadvertently used something that was kadosh, you have to give it back and add 20%. Who does the 20% go to? (laughs) The priest. So the priesthood is very clear. You take something that belonged to us 
not only will you have to repay it, you will have to repay it plus 20%. So Israelites, be very careful that you do not in any way incur Hashem guilt for taking that which belongs to whom? Oh yeah, us, <laughs> the priests. All right. And a person who, without knowing it, sins in regard to any of Yudei Buffet's commandments about things not to be done and then realizes guilt, such a person shall be, such a person, Naso Avono, will bear their sin. Subject to punishment. Okay, whatever. They're guilty and they will bear their sin. That person shall bring to the priest a ram without blemish as a guilt offering, right? As an asham for the error committed unwillingly. Unwittingly, the priest shall make expiation on behalf of that person who then will be what? Nislach, will be forgiven. It is an asham before yod right? Okay, so we're going to get a bunch more of this kind of stuff. But when you a person sins and commits a trespass, dealing deceitfully with another in the matter of a deposit or a pledge or through robbery or by defrauding another, or by finding something lost and lying about it, if one swears falsely regarding any one of the various things that someone may do and sin thereby, when one has thus sinned, and, okay, this is funny to me, not funny, haha, but yeah, kind of funny, haha. When one has thus sinned and realizing guilt, well, um, excuse me, if you deal deceitfully with another in the matter of a pledge, or you rob somebody or defraud somebody, how is it you later realize guilt? These are intentional, right? And later realizing guilt. What's going on here? We could read this very cynically. If you're reading this cynically, what's going on here? You're going to repay it and you're going to add 20%, right? And you're going to bring your asham. Then the priest will make expiation on behalf of the person who shall be forgiven for whatever was done to draw blame thereby. If we are reading this cynically, what's happening? What's going on here? You purposefully defraud somebody. Yeah. Ah, (laughs) you got caught. Somebody comes across your weighted dice. (laughs) somebody comes across your crooked weights and measures and brings them to the priest and goes, uh, Goldberg over there. This is what they're using in the marketplace, right? So one, you get caught. So now, now you're outed, right? The danger is you'll be outed. So you want to go make sure you get out ahead of that, (laughs) right? So you go to the priest and say, you know, I found in my closet these dice from my grandparents and I thought those were the ones that they used. So I just assumed it was all good and that, right? Okay. So that's, that's one way. What's another way that this might be a little cynical? Someone sins and then, uh, and then realizes that they defrauded somebody or lied. <laughs> Right. We could be a little cynical and say it was intentional. Either they got caught or they start to feel guilty. Right. Terrible things start to happen. They get diverticulitis, let's just say. And then they get an infection on top of that from the antibiotics. Let's just say one might go, huh, I might not should have swindled Elaine Swartz last week. Maybe, maybe, just maybe. Right. And I have a big thing coming up next week. I cannot have something else disastrous go wrong. So possibly I might want to clean up my business. Right. So what has to happen? You have to confess. Turns out you have to confess, then make restitution, then add 20%. Right. 
So you're willing to take a certain risk, but then it gets to be too much in guilt and you decide I'm coming clean because I just can't carry this around anymore. If we're reading this text pessimistically, what are the priests doing here? And I'm not saying pessimistically, let's just say realistically. What are the priests doing with the way this is written? Shelly, I see hear you talking, but I don't hear you talking. They're making money. They're making money. They're making a living. They're making money. And I don't think I guilty, don't think they, uh, guilty. They will bear their sin. They are guilty. I don't think they feel guilty. I think they feel sorry they got caught. No, what I'm saying is the priest is using the language. They bear their guilt. You are guilty. You are guilty, Israelite. You will bear your iniquity. You are guilty, guilty. Asham, 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 asham. The priests are banging the Israelites over the head here with the ways they are guilty so that they might be motivated, say some commentators and biblical critics, they are motivating the people to do a serious moral inventory and confess if they come across anything and add 20%, (laughs) right? Like, like Amy, you thought that person understood what you meant by what you were going to be charging them, right? But were you really clear? Really? Super clear? Maybe not, right? So do a very strict moral inventory and know that you will bear your sin if you don't confess and come clean. Amy, does the word Shonda have anything to do with this? It's not, different- not that I know of. We need Sarah Moskowitz, um, but not that I know of. Because Shonda is more in, in the sense of a shame. It's something shameful, right? It's not, not about guilt. It's about that's shameful, embarrassing. So, um, right. So, okay. So wh- whether one is reading this kind of tongue in cheek and a little bit cynically, or one really reads it full on straightforward, it is very clear that there is a possibility that an Israelite has incurred a, a, that one is Ashema, one is guilty. And then one must make restitution. If it was intentional, it's like restitution plus 20%. If it's, uh uh-oh, I didn't realize that was synagogue property, it's restitution plus 20%. Um, but, But remember why they have to confess and go to the priest, because you can't forgive a sin that's done on purpose, right? That That's between the person and God, right? Like, Those aren't supposed to be forgiven, but we get a system here whereby if the person confesses and makes restitution and adds 20%, even an on-purpose sin gets forgiven, okay? So a nice system here for the priests. That is true, by the way. The priesthood could not survive without these offerings because the Olah, they get nothing, right? The Holocaust goes completely up. So they get nothing from that. That doesn't help them. They just have to do a lot of work hacking that beast to pieces. They don't get anything for it. And the one that the participant eats, the priests don't get a lot either, right? The, where the, where the priests really get fed is from this very intricate system of don't worry if you don't have enough money for a ram. Not a problem, right? Bring us your best flower, right? Like this is how the priesthood is essentially sustained. Pam, you had a comment or question? Wondering if um the confession of the Catholic Church comes from our text. I don't think you have to look just at our text. I think that it's um it's worldwide the need to deal with with guilt. The need to deal with the damage that is done by sin. Everybody has to deal with that. Everyone in the ancient world had to deal with that. Offending the gods, you had to figure out how to deal with that. You had to bring an offering. Pre-Israelite, pre-monotheism, in the pagan world, if you offended the gods, you had to figure out how to rectify that because terrible things would happen, right? Think about your Greek literature and how many times it's like, "Uh uh-oh, maybe I offended Hera, 
because stuff's going down at home that didn't go down before. That's Hera's territory, right? Or the neighbors are saber rattling. I've offended the God of war. I'm making all this up because I don't know how their system worked, but right. You can, if you offended the gods, you had to fix that because terrible things were going to happen. Same in the Bible and the ancient near East. You had to figure out how to propitiate the God or do kapara. You had to affect kapara. Um, and so everyone had a system for that. So the Catholics could have gotten that as much from their Celtic roots you are the Celtic people that they conquer. You know, they, it, it was a common, absolutely understood necessity of every single religion is that you had to deal with offending the deity or deities. So um, so I'm not going to say it's unrelated, but I also think, right, everybody had a way to deal with it. And so Catholicism could have had it come in from many, many, many different avenues. Okay. Because remember, the church overtook pagan places yeah and often took pagan rites and rituals like the tree in winter right okay all right all right where am i going now okay so let's go let's go to this beautiful midrash brought by smokler rabbi smokler uh she's the one who did davar muat by the way for those of y'all who remember my sermon, the Devar Mu'at, it is she who gave that lecture. Okay. So let's look at this beautiful teaching that she brings from the Sfadimet. And this is, this is for the whole book of Leviticus. This is not just for our Parsha, but since we're starting the book of Leviticus, she says, I'd like to offer one more related Midrash on the subject of invitation. Are you seeing my screen? Yes. Okay. Vayikra Rabbah, so this is Vayikra Rabbah is a book of Midrash on the book of Leviticus, suggests that Moshe himself also needed to hear God's invitation at this juncture in our story. Vayikra means, and he called, meaning he invited. Who's the he? God. Vayikra Adonai El Moshe. So God calls to Moshe. Those are the opening lines of the book of Leviticus. That's how it gets its name, Vayikra, in Hebrew anyway. Um, and so in English, it comes from the Latin Leviticus from the Levites. But in Hebrew, it's Vayikra, this word, and God called. God invited Moshe. Let us recall that, that we just completed the book of Shemot, which ended with Moshe outside the Mishkan. Here is the last verse of Exodus. The cloud covered the tent of meeting, and the presence of God filled the Mishkan. Moshe could not enter the Mishkan, because the cloud had settled upon it and the presence of the ineffable filled the Mishkan. After working so hard to facilitate the building of the Mishkan, after enabling the construction of the sanctuary for God to dwell amidst God's people, all in complete accordance with God's wishes, Moshe could not find a way into it. So crowded was it by the glory of God that there seemed to be no place for a human being to enter. Moshe was alienated from the very structure that he brought into being, which that's a very sad, right? That's a very poignant midrash, right? That this midrash imagines with this last verse of, of Exodus, of Moshe's like, wait, 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 wait. Like, I just built this whole mother-in-law suite for you, like you asked, so that you would live with us. Wait, 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 like, wait, now I don't get to see you. I don't get to come in. I just built this whole thing for you. And so she brings this uh, uh, midrash from Vayikra Rabbah. Moshe, oh, sorry, Mashal, Lamelech Shetziva et Avodo. Let's go to the English. Um, it's like a king who commands his servant and says to him, build me a palace. On every item that the servant built, he would write on it the name of the king. So the king's name is on everything. And the king goes in finally to the completed palace and says, all this glory my servant made for me. But alas, I'm now inside, but he's outside. The palace was majestic and awe-inspiring, honoring the king in every way, but it was also devoid of people and therefore useless as a vessel for royal service. 
So the king calls out to his servant and invites him in. He called to him that he may enter the inner chamber. Don't stay outside, he says. Come join me. Be with me in this grand space. And not just on the outside, but in the inner sanctum. As my beloved servant, that is where you belong. So God calls to Moshe with the language of affection as Moshe hovers on the outside of the Mishkan, full of fear, perhaps, or humility or discomfort. Do not step away from the God space that you created, God indicates, but step into it. It is your place, too. It is our place, even the inner sanctum. The Torah suggests that this invitation to intimacy came through a quiet voice. This is the little Aleph that's at the end of Vayikra. If you look at it written in a Torah, the Aleph at the end of Vayikra is teeny tiny in every Torah scroll. To help Moses traverse the difficult distance from Mibachutz to Mibifnim, from outside to inside, God whispered a nearly inaudible vowel in Aleph Zeira, the little Aleph lulling Moses towards God's presence, inviting him to connection, to a relationship grounded in the ultimate mysterious unity of the divine and humanity. The numerical value of Aleph is one. And so it seems that God's message of love was also a message of oneness. We belong to the inner sanctum together, together with God, together with humanity. Sometimes all it takes to bring someone on the outside in is a quiet invitation that subtly affirms the little Aleph, the unity that binds us all. So in this Midrash, it's a very wonderful for me uh, metaphor or image that God so filled the Mishkan that humanity's left outside and that God's call to Moshe, the, all of this instruction is saying, come in. Because what is the Korban? He, the Hebrew for sacrifice, korban. What is its shoresh? You all know this. You've learned with me. What is korban? What is its shoresh? What is its root? There is to no word for sacrifice. To draw near. Exactly. To draw near. The thing that draws me near to God, the thing that draws God near to me, that's korban. There is no word sacrifice. That's an English word. Korban. Close bringer. <laughs> right? Bring her closer thing. That's a korban. And that's, that's what's going on with this system is, is coming close to God, bringing God close to the offerer. You eat with God. You have lunch with God. You don't just, I, da, 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 I confess and go home and take a nap. There's lots that we want to reject about this system. I'm not suggesting we need to go backwards, but I'm saying the power of it for them was that you have lunch with God. If you want to make up with somebody, you take them to lunch, to a really nice dinner and say, okay, Lynn Himmelstein, I need to talk to you. I have something really embarrassing that I want to tell you, right? I'm really sorry. Or something wonderful happened to me. So you bring a shlum in, right? Or it's a holiday. Let's go to lunch. Right? So it was an act of intimacy bringing a korban. And you ate with God. You ate with God's emissaries, the priest. This was about drawing close. It was about intimacy, about proximity. And that's why I love this Midrash, that this whole system of Leviticus is God inviting humanity in. Come close. Don't leave me alone in here. The Mishkan, the temple, none of it's worth anything if y'all don't come in. If you don't come close, there's no point in this whole thing. Okay. Having said that, mask mandate ends March 12th. No more masks mandated. We are coming back to KI, people. We are coming back. So get your heads around that. <laughs> we are going to be coming back in person to KI. We will figure out how to do this hybrid model, um, but we are going to come either to the chapel or to the sanctuary 
We don't need masks. You can wear a mask if you want to and then take it down to speak because we don't we don't have to wear it anymore. So if you want to take it down to speak, you can. Um, and so um, we're going to be looking at chapel or social hall. I'm going to be asking you to tell me which you prefer. Um, does it make a difference to you that we're in the chapel or in the social hall? OK, we will set up a screen wherever we are. And a camera so that those of you who want to join us from home can do that. But we're going to start shifting back towards being in the synagogue, being together in the synagogue. <laughs> right. Um, this is I know it's hard. It's hard. It's hard to get our heads around. It's hard to make the shift for some of you. It's hard to make the schlep. Um, Rita, I know it's a super long drive. I get it. Like you'd have to eat a lot of breakfast before trying to make that schlep to be here at 10 from Portland. But, um, but like just saying, we're going to start to get our heads around it and um, come back to what it means to be together and what it means to be physically close. Susan. Yes. I said, we will set up a screen and a camera in whatever room we're in, whether it's the chapel or the social hall, I promise it's not going away because we want, Rita to be able to join us and Emma Linda and whoever else right lives far away. David's had some issues getting around, right? We all get it. We all have, (laughs) we all have issues. (laughs) Barry also. Right. Barry, right. It's going to be hard for Barry. Uh, Right. Shelly Rosenberg, right. Who's also in Portland. Um, Mehmet. It's really a schlep for Mehmet from Turkey. That's a real schlep. Um, all right. So, yes. So you will all be able to listen on Zoom if you can't come in person. Um, and hopefully this will work a little bit better than it did last time. Um, yeah. Starting when, Mark? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, so um, I'm going to say not next Friday because I want another week to tell people about this. Um, and for people to start, like, figuring out their lives and what it means for them. Um, so let's say not the 18th, but the one after. Yeah. So the 25, the 25th. Okay. Um, ooh, okay. Just a tiny bit more time. I, I want to show you this one thing by Milgram, which I just think is very cool. Yitz Greenberg brings it to us. Um, okay. So no, that's, the rhetoric of and expiating with blood. Do you see the exciting things I get to read preparing for you people? Expiating with blood, Leviticus's rhetoric. We're going to go to Greenberg. Okay. So this week we begin the book of Vayikra, which has a strong focus on the priests and the Torah of sacrifices. Our Parsha teaches the rules and purposes of five sacrifices, including the Chatat. When I grew up, the English translation of the Chatat sacrifice was generally a sin offering. Right. Even today, the Jewish Publication Society translation, which we just used, calls it a guilt offering. But Bible scholar Jacob Milgram convinced me that the word chatat is related to lechate, meaning to purify. This offering is therefore more properly called a purification offering. The question is purification of what? All right. That's a big point that he just made. I know it sounds just technical, but it's a big point. Either it's chatat, meaning this is about sin, or it's about purification. Now, it's not unrelated to sin. It's purification because of sin. But the big question that Greenberg, Yitz Greenberg, brings us that he buys Milgram's answer to is purification of what? We got chiper, we got nislach. That's about the person, But what is actually being purified if we're talking about a purification offering? You might have thought that the Chadat brings purification from sin so that the difference is merely semantic. But in fact, this sacrifice is also brought for other reasons. Many of the cases requiring a Chadat have to do with a person becoming impure through contact with a dead animal, but not going through purification as soon as possible. We just saw that. Right. If one discovers that one touched a body or a creepy crawly thing or a dead animal and didn't take care of it right away. That's what we just read. Right. Didn't take care of purifying yourself as soon as possible. 
Thus, the person has increased or extended the sway of impurity in biblical Israel. What has impurity to do with sin? Why bring an offering for being in a state of impurity? It makes some sense that a problem of impurity would be followed by a purification offering. But what's the connection to sin? I want to call attention to one of the cases that requires a chatat. A person witnesses a crime. And we read this in case you forgot. We just read this. It's what our Parsha started with or chapter five started with. A person witnesses a crime and hears a public exhortation asking witnesses to step forward and report what happened. The person saw the crime, but despite the exhortation, still decides not to step forward as a witness. That person is guilty, right? Asham. And is required to bring a chatat offering to clear himself of his guilt. We are not dealing here with any sinful act. We are dealing with a non-act. A decision to be a bystander and not get involved, even though the person knows the culprit. The guilt stems from not having acted to balance this crime with justice or to right, prevent future crimes by witnessing but choosing not to act. Still, this person is not impure and committed no act of sin. What then is this person being purified from? Milgram explains that the purification offering is not so much for the person who brings the chatat sacrifice. Rather, what's it for, people? The sanctuary. It's for the Mishkan. The tabernacle dwells in the midst of the Jewish people, and it represents the presence of God among the people. Here's how the shrine is built. We know this, right? All y'all know this, most of you, right? Here's the outer court. Here's the altar of the burnt offerings. Here's the laver where the priests washed. There's a curtain. Only the priests can go in here. Levites can do some stuff around here. Only the priests can go in here to the shrine where there's the menorah, the table that holds the bread, and the incense altar, right? The outer third, one part of the inner third. And what do we have here? The tiny part, the very most inner third is where is the ark. This is the holy of holy. So there's a parochet here. There's a curtain here. Only the high priest can go in here and only once a year. When? Right? We've been talking about this concept, right? Only on? Yom Kippur. Exactly. To do kapara for the entire nation. Okay. So. The sinful behaviors of people are not only wrong acts that need correction and repentance from the sinners. They create an atmosphere in the community and culture and culture within which the acts are done. So where's the blood put? It's put on the altar and it's poured against the altar. It turns out it it matters what sin we're talking about in terms of where that blood is placed. As it were, so here he's saying that that here's where it depends. The symbolic language of the sacrifice says that the toxic effect attacks the outer court of the Mishkan and its altar. If the whole community or its leadership commit an unintentional sin, then the act is a more weighty creator of pollution. As it were, the toxicity penetrates further and attacks the altar of incense in the inner sanctuary. Finally, if intentional and unrepented sins are committed, the toxic fallout spreads farther and deeper. The spiritual pollution attacks the ark and the holy of holies and the very innermost sanctum of the tabernacle. What would happen then, people? What would happen then? Poof. Thank you, Mark. (laughs) Exactly right. Poof. You get you get that attack going all the way into the altar at the I mean, at the Ark of the Holy of Holies. Boom, boom. Okay. so here is Milgram's chart. I love this. And this is for the book of Leviticus. This is not just for our Parsha. So the altar out here, the outermost altar in involuntary individual sin. Okay, that's where this is the area that has to be dealt with has to be cleansed, involuntary individual sin. Where does the blood have to go? 
if it's involuntary communal sin, the blood has to go to the incense altar because that's how far the attack of this dross of sin goes. If it is brazen and unrepented sin, what has to be dealt with? The holy of holies. All right. For me, this is a brilliant insight. It's not accidental how and where they understood sin permeating the sancta. It's dependent on how serious is the contamination of the culture that is Israel. So if you and I screw up and we go through that stop sign at Temescal Park, right? We get a $500 fine. And we got to deal with the fact that we're not paying close attention. We're creating an unsafe environment for all the hikers and children and doggies that are, should not be off leash, but are um, over here. Okay. But if all of us do something right, because we're not paying attention and we're not being careful enough, the danger, the contamination goes deeper into the heart of the community we've created And if it's brazen and unrepented, people, it's at the core, right? It rots the core of who we are as a community, right? Ultimately, when the presence of sin reaches toxic levels, the divine presence will leave the Mishkan or will leave the temple because the divine presence cannot tolerate such an atmosphere in which sins are neither checked nor repented and reversed. The symbolic language of sacrifice is telling us that a society builds up a culture in which people live and work. If sin is not checked or undone, it becomes dominant. People are living in an environment full of evil and will be affected by it. Then the divine presence will leave, leaving behind a useless, empty shell of a building. The evil pollution in society in which Ezekiel was preaching stifled good people and normalized bad behaviors. Israel became a culture of sin and death, which the God of life would not abide. This was their explanation for why the temple was destroyed. Right? All right. Our portion teaches us that not not only acts of sin, but choosing to bystand neither to fight nor report criminals is a grave offense whose influence spreads and poisons the atmosphere of a community. Similarly, complacency in living with death or death impurity rather than removing it crowds out a culture of life and holiness. In the end, God quote departs from a culture of death. Without repentance and serious action to stop this process of sin or death entrenching itself, the moral and spiritual oxygen will be sucked out of the community. The final result is that the divine presence will depart from such a society. Okay. I think that is a beautiful um, understanding of our Parsha. And of kind of the system of Leviticus in general. We don't have to buy the metaphysical reality that blood wipes away the contamination of sin because it's the only detergent that can deal with death in life, blah, 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 blah. We don't have to buy that. I'm not asking you to. I do believe, like Yitz Greenberg, that there is deep, deep wisdom to saying unaddressed wrongdoing, the normalization of wrongdoing creates a toxic atmosphere where the divine can't be. Mm -hmm. Holiness, goodness can't rise, can't thrive, can't live in a society that tolerates corruption, bad behavior, turning its head, looking away, right? And not dealing with Fill in the blank, corruption, right? Wrongdoing, theft, screwing people out of what they should get or desert, right? So a a society that doesn't address that by definition becomes a place that holiness, goodness, righteousness, justice, equity cannot thrive. 
And that, I believe, is a message that we can take very, very seriously from Torah. Without needing to buy this system, <laughs> I, I think we too often say, well, it's not my problem. I didn't do it, right? But did I speak up? Did I challenge the norms that allow for that? Did I hold my leaders accountable? Did I hold my elected officials accountable? Um, Torah says, if not, you help you help perpetuate a culture of death and sin. And then we're responsible for what thrives and what doesn't in that environment. And that, I believe, um, we can still take very, very seriously. You've been listening to Rabbi Amy Bernstein's Friday morning Torah study from Kehillat Israel in Pacific Palisades, California. For more information, go to our website, www.ourki.org.